We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Nehemiah 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearings of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God, because they had not met with the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it was when they had heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. Now before this, Elishib, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was ailed with Tobiah, and he had prepared for him a large room, where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine, and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. But during all this, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then, after certain days, I obtained leave from the king. And I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Elishib had done with, for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of our God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back, in, I'm sorry, I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse Shemaiah the priest, and Zadok the scribe, and of the Levites, Padiah, and next to them was Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Matanai, for they were considered faithful, and their tasks was to distribute uh, their, to their brethren. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do, by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet... You bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay my hands on you. 
From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. In those days, I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or of the people. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them, and put out their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters from your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused him to sin should we then hear of you doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And one of the sons of Joida, the son of Elishab, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sambala, the Harbonite. Therefore, I drove him from me. Remember me, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood, and the Levites. Thus, I cleansed them of everything pagan. <clears throat> I also assigned duties to the priests and to the Levites, each to his service, and to bring the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed time. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Good evening. So glad that you are here this evening together to worship the Lord in song, the reading of scripture, and now as we look into God's word that has been revealed to us, recorded and passed down for our benefit and his glory. This evening, I invite you to turn your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you would please turn there in your copy of God's word, grab a Bible on the back table if you need one. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And this evening, our text will be verses 3 to verse 10, through verse 10. You may recall in our study last time, we spoke on the treatment of masters. That's right, not the treatment of servants, but the treatment of masters. How, ma or excuse me, how servants or slaves are to treat their masters. The importance we saw in this was that by treating, treating them honorably, they would uphold the name of God rather give cause for God's name and the gospel to be blasphemed. And furthermore, in verse 2, we saw that slaves of believing masters were to treat them all the more honorably and work all the more harder because they would be benefiting a brother in Christ. They would be profiting a man of God, which we said has, Lord willing, good outcomes. You know, why not profit a believing Master who will use those, uh, use those finances, those profits, to perhaps support the church, support ministers of God, and to give to others who have need. Certainly, those are good causes. Well, we continue in verses 3 through 10 this evening with another exhortation from Paul, really a final exhortation about false teachers. We've seen uh, littered throughout kind of First Timothy different top or different discussions on false teachers, and really this is the the last and final of them in at least First Timothy that we see before Paul concludes his letter. And let me read these verses to you this evening, and then we'll look at them more closely and in detail. Paul writes to Timothy in verse three, beginning there: If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord. Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, 
who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed away from the faith in their greediness, and pierced them—excuse me—and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer before we look at the text this evening. Our heavenly Father, we come before you asking, pleading, Lord, that your Spirit might direct us, teach us. Convict us, Lord, that we might turn from any kind of, Lord, sinful behavior and mindset to become more like Christ. Lord, may we not have any of the characterizations of these false teachers that we'll learn about this evening. Rather, learn and practice godliness with contentment. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This evening, I want to draw out three points from this text that we read this evening. And the first is this, that destructive, self-serving motivations underlie false teaching. That is, destructive and self-serving motivations underlie false teaching. And we see this in verses 3 through 5. Secondly, and I draw this right from the text, you'll notice this, godliness with contentment is great gain. We see this in verses 6 through 8. And thirdly, in verses 9 and 10, we learn this, that the desire for wealth is costly. The desire for wealth is costly. But we begin in verses 3 through 5. Let me just read part of that again. Paul writes this concerning false teachers who are spreading false teaching. If anyone teaches otherwise, let me stop there for a moment, otherwise concerning what? Well, concerning everything Paul has just written up to this point, maybe even more specifically what we've seen in chapters 5 and 6 concerning the treatment of others in the church, how we're to care for one another, how we're to treat one another, but certainly all the way back to the beginning of the letter as well. And we might include with that everything else he's going to say up until the end of the letter. So if anyone teaches other than what I've already taught you and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud. He is proud. We see here the first motivation which drives or underlies false teaching, pride. But we, before we speak more about that in just a moment, I want us to focus just a minute longer on verse 3. Verse 3. A false teacher, uh, you know, this is apparent, teaches false doctrine and disagrees with sound teaching. That is what a false teacher is. Someone who spreads or propagates false doctrine. You know, that's basic 101. That's, you know, kind of one plus one. But we have to say that because, in part, there were those in the church who were succumbing to this false teaching, who were professing believers. And so even professing believers got confused over what was true doctrine and what was false doctrine. And so it does profit for us to remind ourselves that false teachers spread not sound doctrine, but false teaching. And false teaching can be defined as anything contrary to the word of God. That begs then the question for us, and even as Pastor alluded to this morning, how well do you know God's word? Are you like Mary? 
who was knowledgeable in Scripture so that, you know, kind of off the cuff, she could sing this praise to God, referencing Scripture. Remember what Scripture says, I've hidden thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. What is the benefit of knowing sound doctrine? It, it prevents us from falling into sin. And so in order to recognize false teaching, we have to recognize what is godly teaching, what is sound teaching, what is wholesome words, true words, pure words, that which is correct. Paul says, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul may be thinking of the actual words that Jesus spoke, which uh, are alluded to or recorded throughout the apostolic teaching. Paul and Peter and others alluding to the words of Jesus. That's certainly probably the case. He may also be talking about the words concerning Jesus, the words which Paul preached concerning whom Jesus Christ was, the Messiah. Both, I think, are reasonable conclusions, whether it be the words of Christ or the things concerning Christ. You know, what really difference is there? Not much, really, when we boil it down. And then Paul says in the end of verse 3, not just wholesome words or the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, but to the doctrine which accords with godliness. I had a fine conversation with a brother earlier this week about this very idea that we simply do not teach doctrine to teach facts, to, you know, to teach more knowledge. The purpose of doctrine is to, is to compel you to right thinking and right behavior. We don't separate theology and doctrine with, you know, practical teaching. Doctrinal and theology teaching is practical. It drives us to understand Christ better and to understand the church better, to understand end times better, so that we behave and think differently. Doctrine is not just about facts and knowing things. It's about learning so that we might be more godly. And Paul clearly says this. He, he talks about doctrine which accords with godliness, that which produces godliness. That is contrary to the kind of teaching or the fruit of the teaching of the false teachers. You remember back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, perhaps you, you remember, Paul calls out the fruit of the false teaching in chapter 1 as he urges Timothy to rebuke the false teachers. He says uh, in verse 3, as I urged you when I went to, this is chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verse 3, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause, here's the fruit of their teaching, what does it cause? It causes disputes. That's not godliness. That's divisiveness, that's ungodliness. And Paul says this, rather than godly edification, which is in faith, the fruit and the outcome of their false teaching was not that which accords with godliness. That is how we can identify false teaching. What is the fruit of the teaching? Does it produce godliness or is it producing disputes, divisiveness, and, and, uh, and the sort but what underlies this false teaching? What compels a false teacher to teach things which do not consent to wholesome words, do not, do not uh, agree with the word of God? Well, Paul tells us there are two main underlying motivations that are destructive and self-serving. And the first one we already said is pride. See that in verse 4? He says, this kind of person that teaches otherwise, he is proud, Paul says, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth. Paul here then we see identifies the motives behind the false teachers in verses 4 and 5. 
one kind of caveat to this is that often motivations are hard to, to identify. And we do best to not quickly judge someone's motives. In fact, Scripture does teach us that. But where Scripture explicitly identifies motivations for certain behaviors and actions, that is fine. We can take it as the truth because it is God's word. We don't have to shy away from that. In a situation where false teaching arises or the characteristics of false teaching are there, we can assume that these kind of motivations underlie such teaching. Pride and also one other, which we'll talk about in a moment. It shouldn't be surprising that Paul identifies pride as one of the underlying motivations for false teaching. The fact that they don't agree with God's word is a demonstration of pride, is it not? Who are they to say that God is wrong and they are right? What kind of attitude is that but a prideful and arrogant kind of attitude to say, I know what God's word says, but I don't think it's right. Sad as it is, I've, I think I've had somewhat similar experiences even at, for instance, the art fair ministry where I'll share something from scripture and say, this is what God's word says. And they'll say, yeah, that's fine, but I don't think that's actually true. I don't think they really understand what they're saying. I think in part they do, but that is such an arrogant and prideful statement to say, yeah, I know that's what it says, but I don't think that's right. Well, it is true. It is right. And they're demonstrating a prideful and arrogant uh, attitude in saying that ignorance as well concerning God's word. Ironically, though, this person who is proud, Paul says, knows nothing, knows nothing. He thinks he knows something, but in thinking that, in, in his false teaching, he demonstrates that actually he's totally devoid of the truth. He's full of pride and empty of knowledge. Full of pride, but empty of knowledge. That is knowledge concerning who Jesus Christ actually is, our Lord and Savior. Uh, empty of the knowledge of what true doctrine is. He's also, by deduction, he's empty of the Holy Spirit. He's demonstrating that God's Spirit is not in him. He's not regenerated. He's Otherwise, he would be consenting. He would be agreeing with the word of God, not disagreeing, not uh, teaching a false doctrine. In his pride, Paul says, not only does he know nothing, but he also is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. Have you ever met someone who is just argumentative in nature when talking about Scripture, talking about doctrine, about the church, matters concerning the church, matters concerning Christ, matters concerning the end times, just so obsessed. It shouldn't be surprising, though, that a person who is proud would be so obsessed with such kinds of disputes because they always want to be right. They have to be the one that is right. They have to be correct. They have to know more than you, certainly, they believe. You can't be correct. They, they have to be the ones that are, that are right. It's interesting. Uh, Paul says, obsessed with disputes. Disputes refer to idle speculation. It's like what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 1, where he talks about you know, idle Idle sayings, idle fables, you know, genealogies, these things have no bearing on godly edification, no value to them. And yet that's what they choose to be obsessed with, rather than what is true doctrine, what is profitable to the church. The idea of arguments over words literally could mean like word battles, meaning kind of scrupling over the meaning of words. You know, what does this word mean exactly? Certainly we want to understand what a word means. 
so that we can have you know right, right understanding of God's word. But I think Paul means more than just even words of scriptures, but ideas of men that these men are obsessed with trying to discern what does it exactly mean. For instance, you know, what is it the meaning of attend church? What is the meaning of you know, participate in the church? What does it mean to have fellowship with the church? What does it mean to repent of sins? What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? All of these things are important to understand, but people become so obsessed, and they already have come come to their own conclusions before the argument even begins. Unfortunately, such arrogance and such motivations in this false teaching have destructive outcomes, both in the life of the person teaching it, but even more broadly and even more pervasive in the life of the church. Look what Paul says. He says, from which... From these disputes and arguments come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings. In contrast, godly teachers are teaching that which produces godly edification, Christ-likeness, submission to Christ and his word. You see the contrast there between the fruit of ungodly teaching, unsound doctrine with sound doctrine. Certainly, such a person is not caring about God's church. Rather, they're more concerned with themselves in the calamity the the, uh, the calamity is this, that envy and strife and reviling and evil suspicions are boiling up within the church, creating division, device, you know, causing people to, to come against one another and begin to bicker just like the false teachers were arguing over words. Let me pause and just for a moment as we look at this text. You may be sitting there and thinking, well, I don't think we have any false teachers in our church. Thank the Lord. I don't think I'm a false teacher, you might be saying, as you're sitting there. I don't believe you are either. But let me ask you this question. Perhaps you're not teaching false doctrine, but is your life characterized by the same kind of things and attitudes as the false teachers. Are you proud? Have you ever disputed and argued over words without proper motivation? If so, in one sense you are like those false teachers, at least in attitude. And really, in one sense, you are demonstrating a kind of false teaching, at least in your own life, because what you're doing is you're saying, I don't agree with God's word, because I'm willing to dispute about God's word. I'm willing to create arguments in which from arise envy and strife and reviling and evil suspicions. I'm willing to do that because I want to be right about something. And in so doing, you're demonstrating the same kind of character as a false teacher. And so let me encourage you and myself to not demonstrate these kinds of attitudes. Humble yourself. Recognize that, you know, maybe I have something to learn here. I don't know everything about God's word. Certainly, I don't want to create these kind of issues in the church by arguing over such things, so I'm just going to avoid it altogether. I'm not going to create a, you know, a you know, I'm not going to ruffle the church, God's people, just because I want to be right about something. Paul identifies a second underlying motivation 
that is self-serving in nature. He says this, uh, beginning in verse 5, the end of the list here, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. The second motivation underlying the false teaching is the love of money. Greediness. Such men, Paul says, are of corrupt minds. Corrupt minds. Their minds have been corrupted by Satan, by their own doing, by rejecting what they knew about God and refusing to believe it and rather going their own way. Their consciences have been corrupted, Paul says, elsewhere. And in the corruption of their conscience, they have become destitute of the truth. Destitute of the truth. The truth is not in them. Like I said a moment ago, maybe they knew something of the truth, but even what they knew, they decided to reject. They willingly refused to believe. There's an idea here uh, that, in a passive sense, that there's someone who drew them away and corrupted their minds and made them destitute of the truth, and certainly Satan is, a, is one of the operating agents in that, but it was also of their own choosing as well. They're not off scot-free. Yes, Satan does corrupt minds. He does, uh, he, does, um, he does cause people to become destitute of the truth by dealing out lies to them, convincing them of, of, uh, of lies, but they are still responsible because we see that the whole reason for doing this, the whole reason for their false teaching is that they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They're not unaware of what they're doing. They have a motivation of greed. The godliness that Paul speaks of here, though, is not the godliness of true godliness. It is a false piety that these false teachers are exercising, practicing, kind of putting up as a facade in order to hide the greed behind it all. In that day, there were some who would, uh, would require some form of payment, financial payment, in order to, for them to give a message. You know, it was kind of their, uh, you know, they'd come and they'd preach and they'd receive some kind of offering, some kind of payment in return. And that is why I think in other passages, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul says, you know, we're not like those who, or 2 Corinthians it is, chapter 2, he says, we're not like those who peddle the gospel. We're not doing this for gain. We're doing this as servants of Christ to glorify God. And so, in contrast, though, there were those who saw it as a means of gain. They were peddling the gospel in order to make a prophet. Now, you may think to yourself again, well, I'm not in this position. I'm not teaching for profit. I'm not even teaching at all, really, for at least from the pulpit. But greed can motivate us to do things which are contrary to sound doctrine. The love of money can keep you out of church. The love of money can keep you from obeying the truth. The love of money can motivate you to do things that are contrary to sound doctrine. We must guard ourselves from such greed, from greed altogether. Now, Paul, in verse 6, says this, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. It's noticeable here that Paul is kind of transitioning here. It's a transitional statement to what he's going to say in the rest of the passage. 
And really, verse 6 functions as somewhat of a hinge between what he's just said in verses 3 through 5 and verses 7 to 10. Having addressed the pride and greed that motivate false teaching, Paul spells out what profit there is where true godliness and contentment exist in a person. The godliness that Paul speaks of here is not like that of the false teachers who exercise false piety in order to make a profit. So the godliness that Paul speaks of in verse 6 is, is different. It's, it's speaking of true godliness rather than the false piety that he alludes to or he speaks of in verse 5. It's a totally different thing. True godliness, then, when accompanied by contentment, is, Paul says, great gain. It is valuable. It is profitable. Notice kind of the irony in that. The profit of contentment. Not the profit of gain, but the profit of contentment. Contentment can be described as an attitude of sufficiency. It is a state of being in which one is content with one's circumstances. Can I ask you, brother or sister, are you content with your circumstances? Are you content? This sufficiency is not a self-sufficiency wherein you are satisfied in yourself because of yourself. It's a sufficiency that arises out of a dependence upon God. cannot be the case that it's a self-sufficiency because true godliness recognizes that you began with nothing and you will leave with nothing. You see that in verse 7? He gives the reason why here in verse 7, why godliness with contentment is great gain. Here's the reason. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. From our very breath, maybe we could say before our very breath, we are totally reliant upon God for what we have. Think of even the miracle of birth, if I can call it a miracle. Of course, you know, there is you know, the, the medical scientific side to it, but it is really a miracle, isn't it? That a baby can be born after nine months. We recently had the joy of welcoming in a a new niece into our family. What a miracle that is. And we've learned through this season of life that we are totally reliant upon God. Even from the very beginning. There's nothing we can do to get ourselves where we are. Someone who really believes that, believes that godliness with contentment is great gain, and furthermore believes that we brought nothing into the world, if they believe that, that is a spirit of humility, not a spirit of pride like the false teachers. That is a spirit of humility to recognize there is nothing that I have brought into this world. All that you have is from God. Both material possessions that you, you, you kind of gather over the times, over the life, but not just the material, also your salvation, both the spiritual things God has given you. All are from God. But Paul says this too. It's not only that we've brought nothing into this world, but it's also certain of this. There is nothing that we carry out. If anyone has pride in saying, well, sure, I didn't bring anything into this world, but look at everything I have now. Well, when their day comes, 
What have they gained? None of that goes on with them. I don't even know who first said it. It's so well said now. You know, there's no U-Haul to heaven. There's no, you know, nothing that goes with you. Herein lies the reason, then, Paul gives, why godliness with contentment is valuable. Because when you die, you will leave all your material possessions behind. At best, the wealth you obtain from greediness is temporary. You enjoy it for, what, 70, 80, 90 years, if God grants it. But godliness with contentment are far more valuable because they last into eternity. There is eternal value to those things, to those virtues. It is because, then, people leave this world with nothing in hand that we should learn to be content with having food and clothing. Paul says this in verse 8. He says, "...and having food and clothing with these..." We shall be content. What is food and clothing? The basic necessities of life, right? If you have food, water, something to eat, you have something to wear on your back, you can survive, can you not? Yeah. Think of John the Baptist, just kind of comes to mind. A man of God who demonstrated contentment. And what did he have? You know, clothes on his back and locusts and honey to eat. And yet, look at what he did for the Lord. If you have these things, you are called to be content. That is what true godliness will do. It will have contentment in these things. Of course, God may choose in his grace to bless you with more than these things. And in our world, and here in the United States, he has blessed us with far more than that. But that does not mean we should ever stop being content with the basics of life. Or not be content if God takes away all those things but the necessities of life. It's easy to say, God, I'm content. I'd be content if I had just clothes and food and clothing for my back because you have more than that. But what if God were to take that away? That then will reveal whether you have true contentment or not. Some, however, do not learn to be content because their godliness is not true godliness. It's a false piety, and it costs them greatly in this life and in eternity. And that's what we find Paul telling us in verses 9 and 10. Those who refuse to practice contentment with godliness and rather desire wealth face very costly consequences. Paul says this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Note that wealth in and of itself is not sinful, Paul does not say those who have wealth fall into temptation, but what does he say? Those who desire to be rich. The want or desire for more and more riches is what Paul is warning against here. Although it's worth noting that the Old Testament specifically often notes about the dangers of wealth. Certainly the desire for it is wrong, but even wealth itself can present dangers, even to a godly person. 
So we have to be wise and discerning and with the wealth that God has given us in order to not fall into these kind of pitfalls. Those who want to get rich, Paul is telling us and teaching us, are putting themselves in an exceptionally dangerous position. How so, you might ask? Well, Paul warns of the calamities that fall upon those who desire wealth. I want to speak specifically to the young people in our church. Yes, this certainly applies to all ages, but you are at a stage of life where you're deciding, what am I going to do with my life? How am I going to make a living? How am I going to use my days? And the world pushes at you that pursuing wealth is a virtue. It is, it is worthwhile. It is the best thing you could do to prove who you are and to make a name for yourself. They see it as profitable, but Paul sees it as costly. Paul warns of three specific calamities. First, they fall into temptation. Secondly, those who pursue wealth fall into a snare. And thirdly, they fall into many foolish and harmful lusts. The desire for wealth is a costly one, my brothers and sisters. Paul uses the metaphor of falling and a snare to indicate the severity of the consequences of pursuing wealth. To fall into temptation means to be tempted by some sin. Certainly, it's not only those who desire wealth that face temptation. Temptation is common to all man, and we all fall into temptation. But Paul seems to be indicating that those wishing and desiring and wanting to be rich face specific temptations, or maybe more temptations, or a certain, or a certain set of temptations. Because of their pursuit of wealth. The desire for wealth can cause people to make illogical decisions. to fall into temptation. Some resort to illegal activity to become richer. They fall into the temptation to, to, you know, robbery, money laundering, embezzlement, fraud, petty theft, any kind of thing, action that can get them more and more. These sort of temptations encapture such people they, they ensnare them. And once people fall into this temptation or these temptations, they are susceptible to, to a snare, Paul says. Paul uses the word, this idea of snare, this metaphor in 1 Timothy 3.7 in regard to young pastors. And also in 2 Timothy 2.25 when he talks about unrepentant sinners. And the snare identified here is one set by Satan. It is a snare set by Satan. He loves to ensnare those who desire wealth. But he also loves to ensnare young pastors. We see in 1 Timothy 3.7, as we said, and also, also unrepentant sinners as well, along with lovers of money. What is a snare? Maybe you're a hunter. You've seen uh, maybe a movie or a show out hunting, and they set a trap for a rabbit or some other creature. A snare is meant to catch prey, to debilitate it, or sometimes even kill it. The metaphor 
here then is strongly conveying the fact that those who love money fall into sinful entrapment, a trap laid by Satan, by the devil. Back to the use of a snare. Certain snares entrap certain animals, certain creatures. You have a rabbit trap, you have a bear trap. They look different, different sizes, different means, different purposes. Could we say Satan has certain snares he loves to use against those who are lovers of money? Certain things he knows will entice them. Stay away from those things, my friends, by staying away from the love of money. The third calamity that Paul mentions is foolish and harmful lust. So those who love money fall into temptation, which may lead them into Satan's snare, which he set for them. And thirdly, Paul mentions foolish and harmful lusts. Where does lust come from? Lust is born from ungodly, sinful affections in the human heart. These particular lusts that Paul describes are foolish because they are irrational, senseless, and illogical, especially from the perspective of someone who knows God, knows what God's desire is. You ever seen someone go down a path of greed or some other sin? You say, why are you doing that? I know where that leads. Foolish. Stop. Same can be said for those who have a love for money. For those who have lived long enough, you see the outcome. You know what's to come. And you just want to say, stop. That's a foolish desire. Foolish lusts. The lust to be, to be famous because of wealth. You know, the lust to get money so you can buy and things to satisfy other sinful cravings. More and more and more so you can, you can feed your addictions. These lusts are also harmful because the result is not true happiness. Instead, it may result in doing harm or being harmed, even. You get yourself so caught up in greed that you rob a bank. What's the consequence of that? Well, jail time. Or maybe you're harmed in the act of greed. These are harmful things. Not only physically, potentially, or materially, in, that, in the sense that you, know, you lose all that you have, but also, more importantly, it, it's spiritually foolish, spiritually harmful to your soul. It is ruinous, destructive. These temptations, snares, and lusts experienced are all exceptionally dangerous because, Paul says, They drown men in destruction and perdition, or some translations say ruin and destruction. Many times, people who have obtained great amounts of wealth eventually go bankrupt and hit rock bottom. That is not always the case. Many live their whole lives wealthy, but as verse 7 says, They take none of it with them. But others carelessly spend all that they have. They greedily obtained it, and they greedily spend it. Their own riches bring them to ruin. Their greed for money costs them not only loss of wealth, perhaps. For some, they lose their job their marriage, their family, their children, their friends, relationships, their life. Perdition or destruction 
describes the ultimate end of such people. You may gain wealth and never lose it, but at the end, the result is destruction. Most commonly, when the Bible talks about destruction in regard to a person's end, it's not necessarily speaking of uh, material destruction or destruction in this world, but in the world to come. It describes the ultimate end of such people, people who are lovers of money. That end, of course, being eternal destruction of the wicked. We see this all over Scripture Job 21:30, Matthew 7:13, Romans 9:22, Philippians 1:28, Hebrews 10:39. I could go on and on. We could talk more about that later. I can give you those passages. But the destruction of such people is ultimate separation from God. And so, as one commentator says, the whole hearted pursuit of material wealth ultimately ruins one's spiritual life. Or may I add, keeps them from ever having spiritual life. Because they're in a pursuit of wealth, not a pursuit of God. Paul then strengthens the argument of verse 9 by quoting a common proverb in verse 10. He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The word for here indicates the reason that desire for wealth leads to ruin and destruction or destruction and perdition. He says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, notice carefully, put on your reading glasses. Paul is not claiming that the Love of money is the singular root of all evils. If you have the old King James Version, I believe that says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But that is not what Paul says here. That's not what the original Greek says. Uh, For those who might find it, uh, interesting. It's uh, before the word uh, root. Uh, there is no article. It is an arthris, meaning no article, no word the. And so Paul is not saying it is the root of all evil, but it is a root amongst many that lead to all kinds of evil. In other words, you will find at the root of many sorts or kinds of evil the love for money. More simply put, why does someone do the sinful behaviors they do? Oftentimes, it's because of the love of money. For instance, the false teachers were motivated by wealth. That is what motivated them to do all kinds of evil in the church and in their own life. As I said earlier, and we'll reiterate here, the love of money may not motivate you to become a false teacher or spread false doctrine, but it could motivate you to abandon sound doctrine, to not attend church, not give to the church, not give to those in need, not take care of your family like Scripture taught us in 1 Timothy chapter 5 because you're too greedy. Well, if I have to support my family, it means I can't, you know, I can't feed all my affections, my desires. And so I'll leave it to the church to care for my family, my widow, the impoverished. It could motivate you to not, uh, to not pay your employees fair wages kind of in relationship to even chapter 6 regarding the treatment of masters and how you work. And in other places, how masters treat slaves. Money doesn't always motivate uh, you to false 
teaching, but it may motivate you to false practicing of sound teaching. And in some cases, it may motivate you to abandon the faith. Paul tells us this. We know it's true for some. He says, for which some, that is, craving, desiring riches, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, or some translations say in their cravings, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Because of those cravings, some have chosen to leave the faith. They have become apostates in their pursuit of worldly pleasure. This was certainly the case for the false teachers, but also for those in general who craved money. Paul doesn't only have the false teachers here in mind, especially here in verses 6 through 10. He's broadened the audience. This could be anyone. It could be the person sitting in the pew who also has greed. And because sin always has consequences, not always in this life, not always immediately, sometimes later in life, as we said earlier, and some at the day of judgment, And because of these consequences, Paul says, many have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Because of their love for money, which has brought them ruin and destruction, they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows, Paul says. These piercings are self-inflicted wounds. In their pursuit of money, they have pierced themselves, Paul says. The idea is like piercing oneself through with a dagger or a thorn to inflict yourself with a wound. The irony here, and even in the Greek language, is in their pursuit of profit, they have pained themselves. They have pained themselves. These are self-inflicted wounds that are born out of greed. And the ultimate pang they will suffer may well be eternal torment in hell. Maybe we could say it in this way, or I could say it. I would rather someone be panged in this life, pierced through as a result of their greed, but then repent before it's too late, than be pierced through with the wound that is unhealable, the one that is eternal, the one that is the wound of torment in hell. So let me ask you this as we close. Is the pursuit of wealth worth worth the cost? The consequences of wanting to become richer are far worse than the values of riches, which, may I remind you, you'll leave behind when you die. So my friends, may we learn to practice godliness with contentment. In doing self, you will save yourself by God's strength from all the calamities that are born out of the love of money. Let's close in a word of prayer this evening. O God, our help in ages past, our help for years to come. Lord, help us to stay away from the love of money, 
which for some motivate them to abandon the faith, to teach sound doctrine, and with that have a spirit of pride. Lord, may we not have those characterizations. May we be nothing like them, but rather be known by you, first and foremost, as a person of godliness that has learned the virtue of contentment. To learn to say what, whatever you've given me is all that I need. Lord, that is true godliness. May we learn to value the virtue of contentment that keeps us from the calamities of greed, which are so costly in this life for many, but certainly for all in the life to come. Help us, Lord. Keep us in your safety, under your refuge, in your arms, we pray. Save those Lord, who are down, going down that path, may they experience the pangs in this life that may awaken them before it is too late, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.